Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of Jill on Money, we are exploring why college funding makes us so crazy. We need a system for lending which doesn't make young adults vulnerable in their most vulnerable years. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Well, it's October, and you know what that means? It's FAFSA month, the free application for federal student aid. And that is going to cause a lot of anxiety for many of you listening. And to understand why you feel the way you do, we have an important guest for the program today. Her name is Caitlin Zaloom. Her book is called Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. And I will tell you that after this interview and reading her book, I absolutely shifted my mindset about why people make themselves crazy about college funding. So here's our interview with Caitlin Zaloom. You're listening to Jill on Money with Jill Schlesinger. Caitlin, um, we start the program with a very simple question. What is the best financial or career decision you have ever made? That is a really great question. I've been uh, academic and a scholar for a long time. Um, The most interesting moment in my career was actually taking a job when I was in college as a teaching assistant at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. BMCC. I took options theory there (laughs) when I was a trader on the Commodities Exchange. Spending time inside BMCC really showed me just how important education is in the lives of, uh, of people all over New York. So let's do a little bit of your story. Uh, where'd you grow up? I grew up uh, in different suburbs around New York. My dad lived in northern New Jersey and my mom lived in Westchester and I commuted to the Bronx for school. You went to Fordham? Uh, no, no, high school. Oh, I went, okay. yeah. oh, so you went to Bronx Science or something? I went or to Horace you... Mann. Oh, wait. So this is good because you had an elite high school education. What happens next? Where where are you going off to college and what are you studying and how do you become what you become today? That's a a really um, not straight path. Good. Well, I went from Horace Mann to Brown, which is a straight path. What'd you study at Brown? I studied um, a combination of things. I studied uh, Middle Eastern studies, which was uh, an interest that I had uh, based on my father's family. And I also studied something called modern culture and media, which is really... Made up. What is that? Is that like semiotics? What is that? A semiotics would have been um, among the things that I studied there. Mm-hmm. But I also studied, yeah, all kinds of social theory that had to do with what happened um, in the United States and the world uh, kind of after the 1960s. Flash forward to where you are this minute when you are thinking about education, the impact on families, and specifically middle-class families. Mm -hmm. What led you to this Mm -hmm. as a topic, to Mm -hmm. to write an entire book about it? Mm -hmm. So as you know, I'm an economic anthropologist, and I had been studying— Can you define that? Okay, so so everyone, let's let's take a moment. Mm -hmm. This is an economic anthropologist. What does that mean? Yeah, so I study— how culture shapes the economy and how the economy shapes culture, that that relationship between those two things. So it was kind of a natural for me to try to understand the relationship between family and these 
big social and economic changes that we experience. And for middle class families, there's no bigger change than the cost of going to college and the significance of going to college in their lives as parents and students both. So in this book, one of the sort of the main thesis is that there is an inherent conflict that is really being embodied and acted out in almost all middle-class families. So can you describe that conflict for the listeners? Yes. So on the one hand, families are being told from very early on in their children's lives, uh, basically from the time any child is born, that they should be doing everything that they can to save for college, that the only responsible thing to do as both parents and as kind of citizens of our economy is to start putting away money for college. At the same time, parents are being told that, in fact, they have to spend. They have to spend in order to get their kids into a good school district. So they have to pay as much rent as they can. They have to buy as much house as they can in the best school district that, as they can. And all the activities that are going to make you into a well-rounded, you know, resume-built student who's going to apply to the best school you can get into, all of that. Th- those things are expensive. Absolutely, they're expensive. And so, and so, and even that, what you're mentioning, has a dual character to it. So it, on the one hand, um, it is for resume building. On the other hand, it's because parents actually want their kid to be well-rounded people, to participate in the full range of possibilities of their lives, including things like sports and arts. I don't feel like in my time as a late 80s graduate of college that this conflict was being, I don't know, I I mean, it was probably always there, but it feels like it's just gotten worse and worse. And in the book, you say that it's the early 80s where this idea of like, you shouldn't rely on anyone else and that this is going to be important, that the pre-80s, it was like the government's going to help you out. And then post-1980, we're talking about you're on your own. Mm -hmm. And that shift is somewhat political, but it has now turned into families. How, mm-hmm. where do you see the escalation of that conflict really beginning? And and when does it get a little bit, maybe does it seem to get away from us a bit? I think you're right that it starts kind of in the, in the 1980s and then really, really ramps up in the 1990s. So it's not only that it starts under the Reagan administration, but it also continues through the Clintons and until today. So it's it's a bit of a bipartisan consensus, I mm. suppose. The issue is really that in the, the 1980s and 1990s, there was a real shift in the way that politicians, policy experts, and others began to think about what college meant. So in that time period, there was a very strong movement to reframe college as an asset, Mm. a private good that students would benefit from in terms of their income. And because college meant elevated income later on, those policy experts and politicians began to think of paying for college also as a private matter, something that should be borne by the students and their families 
privately. And this is when the expansion of the loan system really began. This paragraph really resonated with me. You said that there are tensions between the sacred responsibilities that parents feel towards their children and the cultural expectations of fiscal prudence that financial advisors, lenders, and policymakers prescribe. And I felt a little bit as I was reading this book, so I'm a former investment advisor, certified financial planner, and it's not that I used to say, oh, you should save money for college at any cost, because I always felt like parents should come first, but I always struggled because parents would actually not feel comfortable with the advice that I was offering. And that's really what my takeaway was, being in the business of giving advice, is that you, when you say, Kate, you know what? I get that you want to save for college. You can't. And that you know they're walking out of their that office and they're like, I have to. Mm-hmm. What is that have to? Mm-hmm. What is, why mm-hmm. do they feel like they have to? Mm-hmm. So parents feel like they have to save for college because it is going to be so expensive. And they also don't even know how expensive it is going to be. And this is one of the very strange things about the about the system that we have set up right now. So we have uh, colleges and universities that will cost them at minimum, you know, on average, $25,000. That's, that's the, that would be an average cost of attendance for a public university per year. Yeah. Okay. And I think that it's important when we throw out that number also to remind ourselves that the median income in this country is like $63,000 a year. Right. The middle class, as you define it, is not, you know, the Pew Research quintile thing. You're basically saying... If you make more than 50 grand, you don't qualify for a lot of the grants that are out there, right? That's right, yeah. I was wondering what you think is the upper end of that band, because I think that people are often surprised when they are going through the college experience and they'll say, you know, I live in New York or I live in a burb and I live in California or I live in Ohio and I make good money. I make $200,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of money, maybe Mm -hmm. more in Ohio than on the coast, right? absolutely. But if you make $200,000 a year as a married couple, can you explain what kind of aid, financial aid, you might be able to get as Mm -hmm. that family, a family Mm -hmm. of four, let's make it Mm -hmm. up. What does that look like for Mm -hmm. most people? So there is that possibility for a high earning family to get aid, but we might want to ask what that aid does within any college or university's ability to support students who might really need it. I guess I would also point out that if you're making $200,000, you might actually just be able to pay cash. Um, you might, and you might and you might have started a 529 because you had somewhat more than you needed in a day-to-day way and that that's not necessarily the condition of of most people but of course yes two hundred thousand dollars in New York in San Francisco and other uh, high rent and just high cost places certainly does not go as far as it would in the suburbs of Detroit which is where you'd likely be if you were sending your kid to Western Michigan one thing that I think is really Really interesting is is the question of where people get that money to pay in the first place. So even families that don't make two hundred thousand dollars have to face some cost that they have to bear, and then they kind of shift into gear, um, trying to make that work, trying to pay that cost more or less, no matter what. And yet you also point out that, and I guess this is back to your anthropological background, that 
parents feel this need to create independent kids. Yes. And the process itself is making them dependent. Right. So that's so wacky. Right. Yes, that's incredibly strange because college is supposed to do exactly that. It is supposed to give young adults the ability to to go off into the world and to make the most of their talents and to live their own lives separate from what their parents have given them up to the point where they where they leave home. What also really did resonate with me because I feel like I feel like I want to confess to you that I was one of those people. I am one of those people who really does try to say to people not so much save for college, but like, please take care of yourself. And I think that until I read your book that I would kind of walk away from having a a call with a a listener and say, "Ah, they're not going to be able to do it and like almost judge it. This is because I have four-legged children, not two-legged children, I I suppose. (laughs) But the conversations that are happening are far more thoughtful, I think, than most people give the the masses credit for. And so when you hear the debates about, okay, we're going to wipe out student loan debt, and then, you know, you hear someone go in a box on cable TV say, like, why should I have paid back my debt? These people are deadbeats. They never shouldn't take out the debt for. That's not what's happening. And you interviewed how many people for this? 80 parents, 80 students. Most people? What was the experience? I mean, most people are incredibly thoughtful about sending their kid to college. And families know very well uh, what the toll is going to be um, on their household finances. I mean, parents know that the money that they're going to spend on their kid is money that they won't have later to secure their retirement. You know, I do feel like there is a tendency to kind of lecture people about that, but they understand it. And and so it's a decision to make that they choose to support their kids before they before they make sure that their retirements are in place. One time a flight attendant told me, I always said, oh, I always do the analogy of the flight attendant. Put the mask on yourself before you put it on your kid. She goes, guess what? The plane's going down. They're putting on the kid first. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know why we're so surprised about this. Also, if, if parents actually chose to put their mask on first, we wouldn't need to tell them this over and over and over again. I know. It would just be common sense, but it's not. So I think that uh, from my perspective, what we need to be focusing on is the conflict that most people live in, which is that they really feel an obligation to save and to be good, kind of financially responsible people. They they understand that, but they're in situations where their incomes don't live up to the commitments that they have to their kids. This is Jill on Money. Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, certified financial planner, CBS News business analyst, and host of this, the Jill on Money podcast. I'm here to tell you about our sponsor, Marcus by Goldman Sachs. Marcus is part of a storied company that's been a leader in financial services for generations. Marcus offers simple, secure access to FDIC-insured savings products, including a high-yield online savings account that earns four times the national average. Marcus also offers certificates of deposit, including a no-penalty CD, Get inspired by your savings account and start saving today to help meet your financial goals tomorrow. You can money. Visit Marcus.com forward slash save. National average data provided by Informa and accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Marcus deposits products provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. 
And now back to our interview with Caitlin Zaloom. The cost of college has to come down. And it has to come down for a, a, a number of reasons. First, I mean, because actually, you know, having a lower cost of attendance would just put less pressure on people's finances. Then they could focus on the things that they're good at, like recognizing what their kids' talents are, what their kids' needs are, and launching that person out into the world. That's what families are good at. And so I think the most important thing is that we need to recognize and support that very basic, basic commitment that families have. Okay. But are we building essentially what will become a two-tiered system where you have, you know, really rich people will continue to send their kids to expensive schools and everyone else will get what in your hope? Well, I think one thing that we need to remember is that in this country, we have had some of the best public colleges and universities in the world. I'm a graduate of UC Berkeley. That's where I got my PhD. And so I've seen up close the incredible power of public universities in this country. There's, there is no engine, and okay, maybe I'm a little biased, but there is really no engine better than the UC system for creating a middle class for the state. Um, and, you know, and we certainly had that in New York with uh, with CUNY and CUNY still is doing amazing work. The public university systems are incredibly important, but they have been the target for cuts. Yeah, they've been bled dry. They've been bled dry. They've been bled and bled and bled so that even schools like UC Berkeley um, rely on high paying out of state students to fund the very California students that they're tasked with educating. And that also goes for um, out-of-country students as well. So when the parents who are listening to this, they're like, I hear this and I feel this conflict. What's some advice that you can offer after talking to these 80 parents and 80 students? Yeah, um, I think that it is a really hard to to be in. So historically, uh, higher education has been a uh, a real bipartisan commitment. We all need to send our kids to college if they can get there. And uh, and so I think that we kind of need to get back to that. On the personal front, there are a couple of ways of approaching this high cost that I think are important. One uh, is about getting merit aid um, if your student qualifies. So that means making sure as students are approaching applying to college that their grades are really good. Yeah, well, Um, we have like an average student. I got the all-American kid and he or she, good kid, not lighting the world on fire, but I really would like that kid to be educated. Do you find that there are some, did you find some families who could say, this is all we have? So first of all, I think that that, the advice about shooting for merit aid, I mean, it of course only increases the pressure on students who are already feeling an enormous amount of pressure. So, you know, I say that with a certain degree of uh, hesitation. You know, I think that the other aspect is to really think very broadly about what kind of schools can be good for your kid. Right. And like with stop with the judgments. I actually had an NYU professor who who said to me like, well, you know, if you can get into the top school, great, but otherwise do not go 
to a private school. Like you're insane. Mm-hmm. You're throwing your money out the mm-hmm. window. Mm-hmm. But again, I think that brings up that conflict. I want to give my kids what I think is the best match, the best school. The be- but why? I, but again, yeah. that's a hard conversation, right? It, well, it's a hard conversation. And I also think that, that we need to be thinking about the kind of decision ecology in which families exist. Okay, so mm-hmm. there, it's like a landscape of private schools and public schools. Sometimes the differences in payment between these things is exaggerated. So public schools can actually be very expensive. I mean, especially because the the kind of room and board component of public school is actually much greater mm. um, than in proportion than it is at private schools. And it's more or less fixed. The, the deals that students can get at public and private not necessarily that different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's uh, an important part of the of, of this kind of ecology that that people live in. Also, you know, we have been taught that things that cost more are better. better. Yeah. And so I think that we really need to live up to understanding that that's a message that the sticker price of private colleges is a message that we're sending to people. The education that students will get there is better. And we, and we also, I mean, since the 1980s, have been saying that, in fact, the private sector gives things that are better than the public one anyway. So, so all of that is part of the, the kind of ecology that parents have to make decisions within. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm wondering also how a family navigates this without kind of losing your mind. It seems like this becomes like the, yeah. the hyper focal <clears throat> point of the family and that spending all this time talking about this I just can't imagine what it must feel like for everybody involved. Is the solution, you know, tuition comes down or online education is becomes a more prevalent, that we get more money flowing to these universities, that this is some tipping point that we're entering? You said you're more optimistic and you have a very glowy smile. And maybe it's because you're too familiar with this because reading it was a little scary. Because yeah. I felt a little, first of all, I felt like you, opened my eyes to the conflict that I did not, I think I knew on subconscious level, but not really in the front of mind. I did not know that. So thank you for that. I guess that I'm wondering what's the optimism here? Yeah. You know, I think that the optimism comes from the time that I spent with all of these families and the many conversations that I had with them. Um, Parents and students are so committed to each other and so devoted to making things work for young adults. And that commitment just comes through so strongly. Mm. These are, you know, for the most part, really lovely, responsible people who gave me hope that if we could support them in doing what they do well and what they are totally Um, devoted to doing that we can do this like this will turn out much better than the situation we currently have political season I would be remiss in not asking you about what about these plans to wipe out outstanding student loan debt are you a fan do you or or is that just going to pile back up again until we get to the core issue yeah so I think that there there are a couple of of, uh, different issues I, I think that wiping out student debt, at least some of that debt, um, would be a move which would relieve 
current families who are experiencing a lot of stress and also who do not experience stress equally. So so families in the white middle class generally have much greater resources than, say, African-American families who have the, the, the least resources and who have more debt mm-hmm. um, and actually a much harder time in the labor market. So wiping out debt would help those families who have borne the cost of discrimination more than it would help uh, white families. And what about those people who are like, "But I paid off my debt." Yeah, too I, bad. Yeah. Right? Well, I think that we've got to we've got to move forward, and and also that if you're lucky enough to have paid off your debt, um, you're probably in pretty good shape. Right. I know um, it's so, very puritanical to think that, but that was like the housing crisis, right? Like, oh, don't give debt relief to people who are underwater. Right. I'm responsible. Right. Give too it to bad the banks. Yeah, exactly. That was better. You bring up some interesting alternatives from overseas, some of um, the other systems. And you point out that actually having free tuition is really great, but there are some systems that make the kids pay for the other stuff, and that would right. be books and room and board. Is room that right? And room and board, yes. And 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 those. And how do those systems play out? The systems that uh, seem to work best have some balance of low or no tuition, and also a working student debt system because. We want students to be able to focus on studying. They've got to have time to learn. We don't want them working all the time. And so I think that it's really important to note that even free tuition doesn't mean no debt necessarily Mm -hmm. because you take on debt for good reasons when you're in college, like to open up time to to study and Mm -hmm. to cover cover room and, and board and, you know, the occasional meal out or, you know, um, food for your four-legged kids that you might bring with you to school. So we do need a functional debt system as well as as low or no tuition. For instance, Australia has a a system of student loans that is not nearly as punishing as what we have today. We need a system for lending which doesn't make young adults vulnerable in their most vulnerable years. So it actually just increases this fragility for young adults in the first 10 years of their lives outside of their parents' home. And you called the um, the uh, student loan, what did you call it, the college finance complex? Yeah, the, the student finance the, complex. The student finance complex. I love that phrase. What is the best lending situation or what is the best structure that you could imagine if we started fresh? College might be $50,000 for you and it might be $20,000 for you and you don't know. And And imagine walking into a car dealership where they were like, this Ford might be 50 or $20,000. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah. I mean, that would not that just makes no sense to begin with. So that's kind of the baseline strangeness of it all. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, I think that the student lending system has to be um, it, it needs to be centralized. It needs to be functioning essentially in the same way that we have a 
payroll tax. So right now we have all of these student loan servicers who are sort of standing between the students or graduates, hopefully they've actually gotten their degree, but not necessarily, and the federal government. Those student loan servicers um, throw up all kinds of barriers to repayment. We've seen this over and over and over again with the public service loan forgiveness program. Uh, for instance, with teachers who are trying to get their loans forgiven based on the fact that they go in every day and teach our fifth graders and our seventh graders and our second graders, which is an absolutely necessary public service, but they can't get the loan forgiveness that they are due because of the loan servicers. Well, should there be loan servicers? In other words, the government had said, we don't want to be in that business, right? And so it's very convoluted. I mean, there's a lot of different things that make me nuts about the system. I mean, there's all different rules and there's all different ways of reporting it. And there's all different ways of the aid letters coming from these. There's no consistency. No. No wonder people are pulling their hair out of their head. Exactly. This is just another aspect of the incredible uncertainty that people have to face when it comes to the student finance complex. So we really, really, really need to take the uncertainty out of it. And from my perspective, um, we could, with the loan system, pretty much just take the idea out of the Australian playbook. Yeah, like, use it. It works. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. Well, those Australians in the 28th year of their expansion, and, and they have a better student loan market. <laughs> Caitlin Zaloom, the author of Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. When we started the interview, I said, your best financial or career decision. What was your worst? Oh, that is also a really (laughs) good question. I know academics do not like talking about their foibles, but I used to have some clients who were academics and there are plenty of foibles. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I think that my my worst decision was, I I mean, back in the 90s when there were lots of people making really terrible decisions, instead of investing in an apartment in Berkeley where I was in graduate school, my dad died when I was relatively young. And so I took some of that money and I put it into Global Crossing. Wow. Remember that? That's a bad investment. That was terrible. I know. But I liked how you did that great framing because you're like, just in the 90s when everyone was doing (laughs) bad, not just me. Everybody. Well, just I was in the Bay Area and people were I know, getting a little crazy. Yeah, not that they're crazy now. Though. No, nothing like that. You're listening to Jill on Money. Okay, it's time for the Marcus Minute. We are presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. And today in the hot seat, it's Caitlin Zaloom, author of Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. Caitlin, are you ready to play? I am. We're going to do very short responses. You're going to do fine. Okay. I could see this is an academic freaking out right now. (laughs) Can I write multi-paragraphs? Okay, here we go. What's one word to describe your relationship with money? Curious. What's always worth spending on? Education. Whose face would you put on the dollar bill? Susan B. Anthony. She's already on a coin. It's your last day on earth. You've got a hundred bucks in your pocket. What is the last meal that you would have? Clam chowder and sourdough bread. Wow. How much do you spend on a haircut? Oof. I'm in New York. Do oh, I have to answer that? Oh, come on. That? Listen to this. Listen to this qualification. Let me do that again. How much do you spend on a haircut? 90. 
Oh, please. That's nothing. Caitlin, thanks so much for playing. Thanks. Thanks to Caitlin Zaloom. Her book is important and you should absolutely get a copy and read it. We'll have a link on the website. We drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. Sometimes we sneak in a bonus episode. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Apple, Stitcher, Radio.com, Google Play, you know, anywhere. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. And the show is presented by Marcus by Goldman Sachs. See you next week. Hold up. 